Hello, friends. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Happy New Year, 1983. We are about to take a look back at the biggest and brightest new music releases from January and February of that year. After that, you know the spiel, so I'll be brief. The best of the rest, 13 more noteworthy new music releases from those two months in 1983 are already waiting free and open to the public for you to enjoy at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. How did a song by the manager of the Sex Pistols become the musical basis for one of Eminem's biggest hits? I will answer that question plus share new music as of 1983 from the Ramones, Eric Clapton, Black Sabbath, and when John Mellencamp was a fresh-faced youngster known as John Cougar. That and quite a bit more is waiting for you free and open to the public at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. See you there. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live, on tape, from a multi-purpose, black-on-black podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood side. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Thank you, as always for indulging my passion for music that was very, very new a very, very, very long time. Thank you for sharing my passion for all of this stuff. In just a couple of minutes, I'll be talking to you folks about, without a doubt, the breakthrough album from arguably the, I don't know if they're the biggest, but the most important music act of the 1980s. I mean, Michael Jackson's got a pretty strong claim to that. A, the album that put one of the biggest bands of all time, let's put it that way, on the map very shortly. But first, I'm inclined to lead off with a real curiosity. Uh, charitably, you might call it one of the most daring or enigmatic albums released by a real gigantic artist in the entire major major label era. Less charitably, you might call it one of the most baffling records ever put out by somebody who, well, they didn't have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1983, but if they did, Neil Young would already have punched his card or his ticket or whatever you say as a surefire first ballot Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. As a matter of fact, he had just changed record labels. He'd been with Reprise Records for his entire career, going back to the late 60s. But David Geffen went hunting for big game and he landed a big fish. I'm going to mix as many metaphors as I can here as quickly as possible. And he signed, he, he lured Neil Young away to Geffen Records, which if I'm not mistaken was, you know, was to become a major powerhouse later on. Guns N' Roses, uh, Nirvana... But still, David Geffen was a guy, but he was still establishing the label which bore his name at this point. So he threw a ton of money at Neil Young. He gave him $1 million, which in these pre-Dr. Evil days was quite a sum of cash, I'm told. $1 million guaranteed per album. 
plus total creative control. And this, I'm sure, to everyone at the time, may have seemed like an eye-watering price tag, but definitely seemed like as safe a bet as you could make. Neil Young was the kind of artist that every label wanted to have on their roster. You know, one of the founding fathers of classic rock, a bastion of credibility, one of the consciences of music, of rock and roll. And on top of that, he also consistently sold a lot of records. That's a that's a really good combination. But remember, he had successfully negotiated total creative control. So... He goes into the studio to make his first album for Geffen in May of 1982. He's out in Hawaii, and he records a group of songs. Not a whole album, I don't think, but pretty close to it. And he, the working title is Island in the Sun, as Neil Young would later describe it. It was, quote, a tropical thing all about sailing, ancient civilizations, islands, and water. And I don't know how this works, works exactly, but... Although Neil Young had total creative control, contractually, he brought it to the people at Geffen. And they went, eh, you know, it's good, but you're Neil Young. I think you could do better. And Neil Young was like, okay, let me go do something different. Now, unbeknownst to almost the entire world, Neil Young, well, everybody knew that Neil Young had a son. But what people didn't realize is that Neil Young's son was born with cerebral palsy and a, a real... He was in a real critical state to where Neil Young and his son were uh, unable to communicate. The child couldn't speak. And um, so Neil Young was being inspired by the process of being in hospitals all the time and being around lots of modern equipment and the challenges of communication that he faced most imminently with his son. But, you know, that people face in a more general sense. And that's the first critical part of how the album Trans came to be. The second part is that very clearly you wouldn't have pegged Neil Young as a Kraftwerk fan, but apparently he got in on the ground floor of Krautrock. And so Neil Young went back to Geffen and he goes, voila, where's my million dollars? Put this thing out, and they did. And uh, I don't think it sold very well, and the critics were divided. There's always going to be the people. Maybe some people really did like this, but there's always going to be the people who will say, well, Neil Young did it. Let's. They, there must be something to this. Let me cover my ass and say it's interesting. It's bold. It's exploratory. And then I think there were a fair number of critics who were like, this is not very good. I don't know what this doesn't sound like Neil Young at all. I don't know what he is doing. Uh, and of course, he, you know, he he recovered. Neil Young has been sort of a, a he has a consistent sound, but he's been a bit of a changeling. He'll go back to Crazy Horse and then he'll do the acoustic thing. He found his footing as um, the Neil Young that his fans had come to know and love. And as somebody who could sell records, Harvest Moon was still a couple years down the line. But in, I don't know. Yeah. In January of 1983. This is where we found, this is Neil Young.
I would have loved to have been in the room when Trevor Horn and the Buggles found out that all of a sudden the guy from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young had made a song that would have fit right alongside uh, Video Killed the Radio Star. There you go. Neil Young, who was, of course, far from the only musical artist at this moment in time who was listening to Kraftwerk and the other Krautrock acts and uh, being inspired. In this case, I mean, that was Neil Young pretty faithfully recreating craft work but there are many other artists who were just taking ideas from that and and it was kraut rock was informing the electronic pop revolution which was uh, personified in much more commercially accessible fashion by annie lennox and dave stewart aka eurythmics a year or two before this they had put out an album which was uh, received middling reviews and had almost non-existent sales but they put it all together they lived in some like abandoned warehouse and they had it's funny it's very it's very punk rock you, you, you know you think of punk rock as these guys have a broken guitar that only has four strings and the drummer's missing fingers and all that well there is a very punk rock form of electronic music where you have like one keyboard and one microphone and one drum machine and the end result may end up sounding cleaner and more professional and process and more process but make no mistake this is annie lennox and and dave stewart i think living in the attic of a warehouse with like a couple of outlets and a drum machine and yet in that very primitive setting they made this enduring pop classic sweet dreams are made of these Meanwhile, in February of 1983, U2 released their third studio album, War. This, in case you didn't guess, is the band I was talking about at the top of the show. U2 have to be the most significant band of the 80s, right? Michael Jackson, Prince, solo artists. If we're talking about bands, I've done zero research on this, but I'm flying blind. I feel very confident in saying this is the most significant band of the entire decade, indeed, uh, one of the most significant bands of all time. And this really is their commercial breakthrough, especially stateside. They were largely unknown to this point over here, at least in the mainstream. And I can prove it one time. True story. I was with my mom and my sister and there was a, a Santa Claus asking for donations and giving uh, records as a thank you for donations and just had a bag of records very it, it this is one of those childhood memories where i'm like i'm not entirely sure this happened this may have had more sinister overtones that went completely over my head at the time i don't even think it was christmas time i'm gonna ask i have to ask my mom about this but anyway there was a santa and my mom gave him some money and he gave us uh, a youtube record i forget what it was called it was like some live ep but there was something about sunday bloody sunday involved and i remember my mom not only wouldn't let us listen to it i think she threw it away fearing that it may have been satan music and i didn't come from the bible belt i was not raised in the 1950s but that's how unknown u2 was uh, to the mainstream 
still when I when I I was born in 1977. I don't know how old I was when that happened, but in the early 80s, they 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 put out a couple albums that were successful in the UK. I'm sure they were well known among like college radio types here in the states. But this is where they really all put it together. Indeed, in the UK, it was their first number one album. They knocked Michael Jackson's Thriller out of the number one spot over there. Not quite so successful here, but it did have a number of their their signature singles and really a, a guitar sound more than anything, I think, that would inform so many other bands. You could spend all day, I could do shows on just the U2 clone bands that that took so many different cues from the formula that U2 had arrived at, along with producer Steve Lillywhite. By February of 1983, that lean, innovative, understated yet distinctive guitar sound from the edge on perhaps its best display ever in this classic U2 song right here. At the same time, Def Leppard also released their third album, and there's kind of a funny parallel between the two bands at this point, despite their obvious dissimilarities. Both bands were releasing their third album. Both bands at this point had been working in close collaboration with a producer, in the case of U2, Steve Lillywhite, in the case of Def Leppard, Mutt Lang to distill and enhance and to grow their sound. Both of them, when they came out, U2 wasn't that different from some other angular uh, alternative rock bands who were happening in the world in the very early 80s. Def Leppard was not that different from a bunch of kind of disposable, anonymous heavy metal bands. But U2 elevated their thing to this arena-ready sound, as did... Def Leppard, and this is the transition point for Def Leppard. Whatever you might think of their earlier stuff, the clearest indication that this is a band who will distinguish themselves from a thousand other hair metal bands, the band who would go on to make, you know, Pour Some Sugar on Me and all the other gigantic hits off of Hysteria. The the formula is here on the album Pyromania, which has several of their biggest hits, including my personal favorite Def Leppard song.
just as Def Leppard were making their move to arena headlining level, Journey was nearing sort of the end of their run. In 1983, they released their eighth studio album, Frontiers. And at this point, they'd been a headlining act for five or six years at least. And they were going to do albums after this, but immediately after this album, Steve Perry went off and did a solo album. You know, that whole thing. Creative tensions, for sure, were happening behind the scenes. This was their last studio album with their founding bass player. This is part of the life cycle of being a gigantic band for most bands, I guess. But we find them in peak form in 1983. This album was a huge success. It had two huge singles, The Power Ballad, Faithfully, and this album-oriented rock radio staple right here. Just like U2 and Def Leppard in 1983, Canadian songsmith Brian Adams released his third studio album. And just like U2 and Def Leppard, all involved agree this is the album where Brian Adams refined or stumbled on the formula that would enable a commercial breakthrough and sustained success. And uh, Brian Adams is not a critical darling, was never a critical darling. He at least had a sense of humor about it. His working title for this album, in response to the critics who had dismissed his first two albums, was Brian Adams Hasn't Heard of You Either. The label rejected that. It was renamed Cuts Like a Knife, and it featured a couple of big hits, including this one right here. On February 22nd, 1983, Styx released their 11th studio album, and they were in a pretty similar place here to where Journey was as well, quite a bit closer to the end of their commercial run than the beginning, and with uh, some creative and or personal tension within the group. Like Journey, this was the last album that Styx released, at least for a long time, with their classic lineup intact. What do you do when you've had success in gigantic tours and big hit singles? You try to write a double album and or some sort of concept album. Kilroy was here, was a single LP and probably cassette at this point release, but it was a concept album, rock opera kind of thing. In case you've ever wondered, uh, it was about a world where rock music is outlawed. I've listened to this song many, many times. I didn't get that either. But this was, for better or for worse, a gigantic hit and a real uh, sign of the times from 1983. <laughs> 
machine or Madagascar. Secret, secret, I've got a secret. With parts made in Japan. Secret, secret, I've got a secret. I am the modern man. In the last couple of years, I have taken a weird personal interest in Christopher Cross for for two reasons, I guess. First of all, when I was a kid, the Dudley Moore movie, Arthur, was on TV. It seemed like all the time. And I, I, I don't know how many times I saw Arthur when I was a child. I think they showed it during rain delays of Yankee games on WPIX in New York. And the theme song from Arthur was uh, the Oscar winner. It was written by Burt Bacharach, but it was performed by uh, Christopher Cross. Everybody knows this song, right? But I never pass up an, an opportunity to play it anyway. Like an angel, he sings like a cherub man, does <clears throat> Christopher Cross. So the other reason why I took an interest in Christopher Cross is because he's this interesting, I don't know, cautionary tale, footnote, whatever you want to call it. Christopher Cross is one of very, very few artists who've like swept the Grammys. Remember when Titanic won all of the Oscars? Christopher Cross had that kind of night at the Grammys in 1981. And if you look at the previews going into that Grammy show, people were uh, wondering how many uh, Grammys is Barbara Streisand going to win or Paul Simon, I forget who had big records that same year. And for whatever reason, the voters saw it differently. Different, and he won, you know, best new artist and best song and best album. And the story goes that he had this gigantic success. He sold 5 million copies of, I think it's a self-titled debut album. And then it was just over for him. And the problem with a lot of really good stories is that the facts don't totally bear them out. For one thing, the theme song from Arthur, which won an Oscar, was not on his first album. So he followed up his very successful, critically acclaimed, award-winning first album with a song that won an Oscar from a gigantic movie. That's not nothing. But in 1983, he put out his second solo album. And at this point, the, the winds of change were blowing against the king of yacht rock, as he would kind of come to be known. He did not describe his sound as yacht rock. He called it pop and roll. It was very, very, very of its time. It was very 70s, moving into the 80s. Probably most important of all, his thing and his look were not MTV friendly and there just wasn't really a place for uh, Christopher Cross in the in the commercial world by the time 1983 rolled around but it doesn't mean the music is bad indeed as a guy who I spent a lot of time in my car I drive my kids back and forth and back and forth all the time as a guy who's listened to a little bit of Christopher Cross I consider this song which was not on his first album one of his best
featuring Ace backup vocals from Michael McDonald, also at this point well on his way to becoming persona non grata in the post-MTV 80s pop landscape. Moving on, let me put it this way. If you grew up in the UK, you might be surprised to find out that there is a version of the classic pop song, Our Lips Are Sealed, that was performed by a band other than Funboy 3. The name of that band probably does not ring a bell, but a member of Funboy 3 was in a relationship, Terry Hall, the singer to be specific, he was in a relationship with Jane Weedlin, who is better known as the guitar player of The Go-Go's. They collaboratively wrote this song together. They each brought it back to their respective groups. The Go-Go's version came out first. It beat out the Fun Boy 3 version by like a year and a half, two years. But although it seems like it would have been kind of tailor-made for the UK pop landscape, it didn't do much over there. It didn't even crack the top 40 this version of the song, on the other hand, was a gigantic hit in Funboy 3's native UK. That's when they disappear, that's when we lose the fear. It doesn't matter what they say. In the jealous games people play. All of the sealed. It doesn't matter what they say. I personally definitely prefer the version that I heard first. I'm sure people who grew up in the UK feel the exact same way about that version. Speaking of the UK, Echo and the Bunnymen in 1983 established themselves as a real commercial force. Here in the States, they were destined to become more of an underground act, but still definitely one of the, the heavyweights of the indie alternative first wave kind of scene. One of their signature songs was included on the album Porcupine, which was released on February 4th, 1983. By 1983, Social Distortion had been a band for three years. They'd played out, they had toured, but they had not yet recorded their debut album. That changed in the space of exactly one day. On Christmas Eve 1982, Mike Ness and the rest of Social Distortion convened in a studio in nearby Fullerton, California. I don't know exactly how many hours it took, but when they got there, they had nothing. When they left they had their debut album, which came out a few weeks later, featuring several songs that would be standards throughout their career, including this one right here.
right around the time Social Distortion were recording their debut on the other side of the country, Sonic Youth were literally in the basement of a building. The producer of their first record was uh, a building superintendent, and I think he lived in the, you know, very often supers live in the basement apartment, and he'd set up a primitive recording studio down there, and that is where Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon and the rest of Sonic Youth began their recording career. The album is called Confusion is Sex. Personally, I remember I got this. This is one of my 10 for a penny albums from Columbia House. And I was everybody's aware of Sonic Youth in the 90s. I didn't really have strong feelings one way or another. I liked a couple songs off of Goo. Was that the name of the big album they had? Anyway, I got this and it was recognizably different. This is much earlier in their career. This is 10 years before they had any sort of uh, commercial breakthrough. And I listened to it and I thought, this is this is awful. This is terrible. And I put it in my bag and I went and saw some friends in New York City. And at some point in the evening, I said, hey, listen to this. This is the first Sonic Youth album. Isn't it so terrible? But the thing is, when I listened to it for the first time, I was sober. And by the time I put it on again that night, me and my friends had been smoking a bunch of weed and we just sat there dumbfounded, including me. Now that I was stoned, it all made sense. Not the first or last time I had that experience. See what you make of, you've probably never heard this, the very first album from uh, Sonic Youth. The very first song from Confusion Is Sex is Kill Your Idols. Yeah, you might be thinking what I'm thinking. I'm kind of backing not stoned teenage Mike Tully on that. I have not listened to Confucianist Sex in uh, a, a good long time. Sonic Youth, I feel like that's kind of their thing. If you love it, that's great. If you hate it, that's great. But what they do is just so noisy and spacey. You could just be in the right bar at the right time, playing the right game of pool with the right cute girl, and that song might hit you a total different way than, I don't know how it hit you, it just hit me right here, right now. But my opinion on all this stuff is only worth so much, because we have reached the last song that I'm going to share with you, uh, at least here in the regular pod feed. You know, there's tons more of this stuff waiting for you at my Patreon and it's a song that I've really come around on over the years. When I lived in the New York area, I just shit on L.A. because that's what we were all... I don't remember anybody in New Jersey where I grew up having an opinion about Los Angeles. But once you got into New York, it was just understood you were supposed to scoff at Los Angeles as this lesser city. This Sure, the weather's nice, but it's a cultural wasteland. And my personal go-to example for why New York was just indisputably, not just superior to Los Angeles, why it was laughable to even make the comparison was the city's respective signature songs. What is the song for New York? It's New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. 
it epitomizes all that is great about the Empire State and Gotham City. Meanwhile, what does LA have? What do they play at the end of Dodger games? It is this song by Randy Newman. And it always struck me as a joke. I thought everybody must be joking. And now I've lived out here for the better part of 20 years. And it took me a long time to admit that I kind of actually, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying I like LA better than New York. I just, I do love LA and there is no surer proof of the fact that I've totally sold my soul to this city. Um, than the fact that I kind of actually love this song too. I'll leave you with Randy Newman off of his 1983 album, Trouble in Paradise, which somehow ranks as number 67 on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Albums of the 80s. Man, the rest of the songs must be really, really good because this is the one song from that album that anybody knows. And uh, I think we can all agree it is a total piece of shit a lovable piece of shit though it may be folks thanks as always for listening remember i just did 13 new uh, music releases from january february 1983 there is exactly 13 more some really interesting stuff in there just trust me it's a good show waiting at patreon.com slash mike telly along with many thousands of other audio curiosities and podcast fun i'll see you there but i leave you with this randy newman and i love la Perfect day.